Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for joining us here on ADH. As you know, uh, well, I hope you do. I'm Alan Jones and we've got a hell of a program for you. Question marks continue to be asked about the Albanese government and in particular the competence of Chris Bowen as energy minister. I have said for months and months that Bowen's energy policy is a national economic suicide note. My advice to the voter is, come on, we've got to wake up. Our thoughts tonight, though, are with our friends in New Zealand, a terrible story from the Loafers Lodge Hostel in Wellington. Fire engulfed the hostel overnight. Authorities are trying to work out if any Australians were at the hostel at the time. Reports say that police and services are at least a day away from being able to enter the building. Six people have been confirmed dead and 11 are missing. This is south of Wellington. The hostel caught a light just after midnight last night. Well, 11 interest rate increases seem to be doing the job. It's a blunt instrument, isn't it? But consumer confidence has slumped to one of its lowest levels on record. Now, this is the key. One of the factors in this is interest rates, yes. The other is the fear of what the Reserve Bank will do after the Chalmers spending in the budget. Now, the Westpac Melbourne Institute measure of consumer sentiment dropped 5.3% after the Reserve Bank's decision in early May to lift the cash rate to 3.85%. But the confidence was further undermined by the Chalmers budget. You don't read about this, do you? Which showed confidence down by an additional 7.4%. In other words, basically, it did nothing other than offer a further threat to interest rate increases. The Westpac chief economist, Bill Evans, who's been around forever and knows his stuff, said about 60% of the drop in consumer confidence was likely due to the budget the rest due to interest rates. On the back of that, unsurprisingly, we're told that households will now cut back on eating beef this year. High retail prices, and of course these cost of living pressures, have forced consumers to look for cheaper meat alternatives. But if the shopper is going for the cheap cuts because of cost of living pressures, spare a thought for the farmer. Cattle prices have fallen. So these are disturbing trends for the bush. Last year marked the lowest cattle slaughter number in Australia in 37 years. But I suppose on the other hand, cheaper cattle does improve Australia's position in export markets. But all of this cost of living interest rate merry-go-round is affecting an awful lot of people. Peter Dutton was right when he said that any changes to negative gearing would impact renters, but immediately Anthony Albanese sensibly ruled out any changes. But Peter Dutton was also right to say there appeared to be a divide between the Treasurer and the Prime Minister on this issue. Well, that was most probably proven in Melbourne today when the Prime Minister was testy when asked about the government's negative gearing policy. No change, he said. And then he went on, I think that's a pretty clear answer, which is shorthand for saying to Jim Chalmers, are you listening? I'm running the show. I spoke on the program last week about this coronavirus response and the punitive approach towards vaccination. Well, now we learn at the weekend, all but four Sydney councils still require staff to be vaccinated, even after the end of public health orders and the World Health Organization declaring the global health emergency is over. Now this is happening across Australia. People have lost their jobs because they're not vaccinated. 
Freedom out the window. How'd you be losing your job because you aren't vaccinated? Of 31 councils in Sydney asked, only Wallandilly, Karingai, Hunters Hill and the Hills have revoked COVID vaccination mandates. A mandate which is a barrier to employment and to talent. Chris Minns, come on, where are you on this? Not on. This Sofronoff inquiry into the charging of Bruce Learman and the complainant Brittany Higgins makes unsavoury reading for the director of the ACT's public prosecutions, this Shane Drumgold. Stephen Wybrow SC, who represented Mr Learman at last year's aborted trial, has told the Sofronoff inquiry that Higgins repeat allegations of rape, Higgins National Press Club address, Lisa Wilkinson's Logies win for her interview with Higgins, and the constant presence with Higgins of the Victims of Crime Commissioner when Higgins entered the court helped to convict Lehman in the media. Stephen Wybrow argued that Ms Higgins had chosen to publicly identify herself as the alleged victim of rape and therefore his client had already been convicted in the media. Mark Tedeschi KC, representing the Shane Drumgold, the ACT DPP, asked Stephen Wybrow whether he would agree that he'd been involved in some cases where the credibility issues affecting the complainant had been, quote, much more cogent than those affecting Higgins, unquote. Wybrow responded, listen to this, quote, it is hard to think of any cases where there were so many things that the complainant had said which were able to be demonstrated to be wrong or inconsistent or sometimes said knowing they were wrong, but for a reason. The inquiry chair Sofronoff said he had to deal with the question of whether the charge should even have been laid against Lehman. Last Friday, the ACT Attorney General declined an invitation to express confidence in his DPP, Shane Drumgold. Well, to all you golfers who take off early in the morning, two extraordinary Australian achievements. Cameron Smith fired a 61 to force a playoff for $6 million in the LIV golf event in America at the weekend, 61. Three finished up tying, but in the playoff, Dustin Johnson made a huge birdie putt at the first extra hole, six million bucks. <laughs> While that was happening on Mother's Day, the now 35-year-old from Bow Desert in Queensland, Jason Day, ended his five-year title drought on the PGA Tour by winning the prestigious Byron Nelson Classic. Mother's Day, Jason Day was close to his mother, who died from lung cancer last year. His wife, Ellie, was greenside in Texas with their four kids and Ellie pregnant with a fifth. He fired a nine under par 62 in the last round, cop this, to finish 23 under par. The golfing nuts will all be envious. And in rugby league, I can't hack the amateurish view of administrators who, when the going gets tough, blame the coach. Anthony Griffin has been sacked as coach of St George Illawarra. You'd have to be a true believer to imagine that this will improve the fate of the team for the rest of the season. Yes, St George did lose their sixth game in a row at the weekend, but the team has very, been very competitive as, he's re, as Griffin tried to rebuild it, even though they've only had two wins from 10 starts. Tonight, there's going to be a meeting between the St George chief executive and others to address St George fans. Anthony Griffin has been left off the list of speakers. The faceless men who make these decisions never apply the same brutal treatment to themselves. The coach just has to cop it, eh? Anthony Griffin, hold your head high, my friend. I don't know the man, 
but I think he's done a very, very good job in difficult circumstances. One story of interest is that the UK Civil Aviation Authority is now saying that within 10 years, travellers will be able to fly from Britain to Australia in less than two hours by travelling through space. The Aviation Authority has apparently funded a medical study into the effects of suborbital space flights where passengers would be briefly sent into space before descending to land at their destination. I won't be putting my hand up to be the first passenger. You're with ADH, I'm Alan Jones. I can't be the only person who wonders whether on matters critical to our future, and most importantly, the future of our children, the Liberal Party, whatever it might be, and whomever it is, seems to have lost its voice. An appropriate word, voice. Let me say this again. In terms of voices for Indigenous Australians, there are already 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. The Prime Minister has an Indigenous Advisory Council. There are more than 30 land councils. And if you're still recovering from my first point, 3,352 Aboriginal corporations, there's also a so-called Council of Peaks, representing 70 Aboriginal corporations. 40% of the nation is subject to land title of some kind, much of that land is subject to mining and the royalties go to Indigenous Australians. The Aboriginal population is officially 3.8%, but we have 11 Aboriginal MPs in the Federal Parliament, which represents 4.8% of the population. 4.8%, sorry, of the 4.8% of the Parliament, not of the population, 4.8% of the Parliament. So they're overrepresented, but they still want an Aboriginal voice. We're constantly told at every turn that we're not the real owners of this land. So we have welcome to country. In other words, please come in, but just remember, it's not yours. As the historian Keith Windshuttle has said, two decades ago, this ritual was unknown. He's also said it was introduced without public debate, let alone public support. And he said its authors had never been named or their purposes justified. Keith Windshuttle has further said, and I quote, this has been foisted on a mystified public as though it had the sanction of deep indigenous tradition, unquote. Yet this is what young Australians are being taught, welcome to country, browbeaten to the point of intimidation, which prevents them from challenging the notion of invasion or challenging the notion that they must accept that another people, unknown to them, own the land they live on, own the land that they're being educated on, own the land that they're working on, even the land they're buried on. I mentioned to you several times that documents from the original, original working group which gave birth to this Uluru statement from the heart, documents released under freedom of information say that, quote, any voice to parliament should be designed so that it could support and promote a treaty making process. And that, unquote, and that the treaty must include, quote, a fixed percentage of gross national product, rates, land tax, royalties, unquote. And that quote, Aboriginal names for places and things across Australia should be the norm and used by wider Australia, unquote. And that quote, the Australian flag, it says, symbolises the injustices of colonisation, unquote. Well, we've already got this, haven't we? Place names already changed to Aboriginal names. Just watch the ABC News if you can stomach it. They don't broadcast a story from Goulburn in New South Wales, but rather from Burbong. We no longer have stories from Melbourne. We cross to our reporter in Nam. And remember, Lydia Thorpe has said she doesn't want a voice. She doesn't even want a treaty. She wants sovereignty. 
Well, I don't know whether the Liberal Party is asleep at the wheel. I certainly think Australia is asleep at the wheel. Last weekend, the Queensland government met in North Queensland. And what came out of it? The first answer to that question is that we're electing politicians who are deaf to the concerns of the electorate. The Queensland Cabinet Minister Craig Crawford, who's the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships, hmm? do you like the bit partnerships? A far north Queensland MP, he proudly boasted that treaty deals between Aboriginal Australians and state governments will be worth hundreds of millions of dollars apiece and they should factor in, make it up as you go along, the number of Indigenous people killed in historic local massacres. The Palaszczuk government passed a treaty process touted as setting the standard in Indigenous government relations to recognise, you ready? The amount of land taken by British colonial forces, this is in Queensland, and the impact of massacres. And this, we're told, will formulate the value of each deal made with local Aboriginal groups. They're laughing at us, aren't they? Labor governments are in power all over Australia, and we're told that Victoria and New South Wales are pursuing their own treaties with local Indigenous groups. And of course, Albanese and co are storming the countryside, read the Uluru Statement and a voice whose hidden agenda is treaties and sovereignty. But listen to this. According to this never before heard of Queensland MP Craig Crawford, it is very hard to give an exact estimation on the cost of future treaties. Remember, Queensland's swimming in debt, as is the nation. And here we are being told, we don't know what these treaties will cost, except that the language being used by government people estimates hundreds of millions of dollars. Where is the mandate for this stuff? There isn't. It gets worse or better, depending on your perspective. From the Indigenous point of view, it gets better. This bloke Crawford said that while it was very hard to give an exact estimation of the cost of future treaties, he told us that about 80 of these had been finalised in New Zealand. <laughs> Ask your New Zealand friends, don't the New Zealanders know all about this? It's one reason the Labor government there will be beaten at the next election. But this bloke Crawford admitted that New Zealand treaties, quote, nearly all cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And that will, quote, give us a bit of a guide to get an idea what that looks like in a Queensland context, unquote. You bet it will. Well, here's the rub. What it really involves will be informed by a truth-telling inquiry. Here we are. Labor in the saddle everywhere, and they're going for broke. In Queensland, the exact number of Queensland treaties, we're told by this bloke Crawford, will take years to finalise. Now, you ready for it? It'll depend, we're told, on community consultation. That's a laugh. There's been no community consultation to get us even to this point. But then he tells us, now you're sitting down and standing up. You better sit down or you'll fall over. He then tells us there are about 150 Indigenous nations in the state of Queensland and financial payments will vary depending on the impacts of colonisation and it'll be up to individual First Nations groups to decide how to spend the settlement money. And New Zealanders, you know what rubbish this bloke Crawford was telling the media last week? That a number of Maori tribes had invested settlement funds in New Zealand to deliver long-term dividends, buying large industries, building corporate towers, and partnership with other organisations such that the New Zealand Maori economy now is worth about $68 billion. This is, of course, the Ardern byproduct 
and New Zealanders are furious. But the Palaszczuk government, via this bloke Crawford, has said that Queensland's traditional owners, you see, north of the border, you don't own your farm or your house. No, 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 no. Traditional owners will lead negotiations on what they want in their treaties. And they may ask, we're told, for repatriation. That is, give the land back. Joint management of national parks, the renaming of places, changes to school curricula, reforms in criminal justice. And this Minister Crawford said the First Nations groups could put, quote, anything on the table. And all this is about to start in Labor's WA, Labor's Victoria, Labor's Northern Territory, Labor's New South Wales. If we're mugs enough to vote yes to this so-called voice referendum, we have been warned what comes next. My concern is Peter Dutton's a Queenslander. David Crisofulli, the opposition leader in Queensland, is a Queenslander. Where the hell are they? They've either lost their voice or they've lost their nerve. I've long argued and I'll continue to argue that the greatest transformation in the Liberal Party of Australia has not been the infiltration and dare I say the takeover by the left within the Liberal Party, grossly damaging as that has been, producing Labor governments across mainland Australia and a federal government in Canberra. The left have had their say and here we are. They call themselves of course moderates, they're anything but moderate. They have destroyed the backbone of the Liberal Party. As if that isn't enough though, the further destructive change is that the Liberal Party has become an insider's party. I've made this point before. If Peter doesn't, Dutton doesn't stop this, he'll be buried as well. I say it again, it would be easier to join the Freemasons or the Illuminati, which is a Bavarian secret society, than it would be to join your local Liberal Party branch. In today's world, exclusion is a form of bullying. Well, the Liberal Party are masters of the art of bullying. As a result, the party is no longer fit for purpose. The voter has decided that. The power brokers from all factions are addicted to power and therefore they'll never change, even when the political map of Australia is all red. The further proof of what I just said will be revealed when a replacement is found for the sadly departed Senator Jim Molan. The party's also looking to New South Wales for a new party president. Scott Morrison parachuted Maria Kovacic. Who? <laughs> you say, who? Yeah, Maria Kovacic to be the Liberal candidate for Parramatta at the last federal election. She got thumped. So they made her president of the party, the factions. Now there's a casual Senate vacancy, so she leaves the presidency and puts her hand up for this. Her backstory offers no evidence of political ability. But the lefties, who want to call themselves moderates, will make the choices and the insiders party will proceed down the same loser's road. The factional lightweights will continue to get the plum jobs. The rank and file membership, who should be the real power brokers, will again be ignored. And the metaphor of the unelectability of the Liberal Party, and you've got to understand the problem if you want to solve it, the unelectability of the Liberal Party can be found in Victoria, where a lefty John Pesuto, who should never be the leader of anything, has mobilised the Parliamentary Party to remove from it Moira Deeming. Now, I often speak to Professor James Allen, the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, who always makes sense on these issues, and he joins me for his own perceptive observations of the destructive forces still alive within the Liberal Party. James, thank you for your time. I was fascinated to note that back in 2014, you argued that the Institute of Public Affairs, John Roscombe, should have got the nod in the vacated Victorian state seat of Hawthorne 
but the insider Pursuto won the prize. And here we are today. Yes, well, thank you for having me on. I mean, in retrospect, they should have given it to anybody but Pesuto, but there you go. <laughs> Throw a dart at the phone book. The, the insider's choice, merit out the window. I mean, if you weren't an insider, then you suffered the Roscombe fate. You're simply not welcome. And now the same Pesuto in this thuggish behaviour towards Moira Deeming, as you've said, after nine years of heavy-handed and thuggish behaviour by the Andrews government, Andrews still won the last Victorian election with more seats than he had before he went into it. And you say, quote, be honest, no one with an IQ over 60, so with any luck that might, you said, just might include at least a few of the state Liberal MPs and maybe one or two Liberal Party pre-selectors in Victoria. You said with an IQ over 60, no one would believe that Pesuto could lead the Liberal Party to victory in the next election. How does he hang on? Well, I mean, the problem is, and I, I, I talk about this this week in The Spectator, the problem is that uh, as long as the party insiders are picking the leader, it, you know, it used to be, be fine 50 years ago to have caucus pick the leader, but it's not working for conservative parties anymore for all the reasons you talked about. If you look at Canada, which is a more left-wing country than Australia, the Conservative Party of Canada has 700,000 party members the Liberal Party here in Australia has about 20 to 30,000. So there's 20 times more. And it's solely because in, in the Conservative Party in Canada, the party members pick the leader. And it doesn't matter what the party room thinks. And that's why they have a very good Conservative leader right now, the Tories, uh, Pierre Poiliev. And he's five points ahead. Everything the moderates tell you in the mainstream media, it's all wrong. The way to win elections is to offer a principled, value-based, right-of-center policy program, which these careerist so-called moderates, but really quite left-wing uh, libs, will not do. That's magnificent analysis. I mean, you said in relation to Andrews that you want to see thuggish politicians punished, but you said also you would spoil your ballot before you voted for Pesuto because of the way he's treated Moira Deeming. Yes. I mean, I was against the lockdowns from day one, pretty much. Yes, I was. We're all cancelled. Look at the. We were right. If you look at the cumulative excess deaths, Sweden has the lowest in the OECD. They're doing better than anyone. They didn't drive any businesses under out of business. They didn't. They didn't impose the worst uh, sort of inroads on our civil liberties in 300 years. And their outcomes, in terms of deaths. Are better. Yep. And so it's a disgrace. So I want all of the politicians who did that to us punished. But even in that context, you know, the, the Victorian Libs aren't saying what Deeming did wrong. There's no original sin anymore. They're saying she's not allowed to attack, you know, the leader by issuing defamation pleadings. But she didn't do that in the abstract. She did that because he's trying to toss her out of the party. Absolutely. What was her original sin? Standing yes, I up mean, for women. That, that's right. We'll soon find out about Pesuto because she's actually going to take defamation action now because uh, Pesuto is trying to argue that she's a Nazi sympathiser. Just by way of background, I think, you know, we've done this on this program several times, but Maura Deeming was speaking at a rally on the steps of Parliament House in Victoria, to, uh, in Melbourne, to secure safe spaces for women in this transgender debate. That is, should a biological man who becomes a woman, be able to go into female dressing rooms, play female sport and so on. And this was just a, a rally for that purpose. Some Nazi ratbags were let through security by police, why I don't know, and they were captured we virtually... We can speculate, Alan. We so, can speculate. Eh? We can speculate That's why right. they were let through. That's right. That's right. 
Who runs the police in Victoria? Where were you, Mr. Andrews? Anyway, they stormed the meeting. Moira Deeming said, accused by Pursuto and co, Daniel Andrews and others, that she was a Nazi sympathiser because this mob turned up. It does remind you, though, doesn't it, James, of Prime Minister Morrison pointing to the public gallery at Brittany Higgins and apologising for the way she had been treated. We're now seeing how that's being, uh, the things that are being revealed about that in Canberra. He, I mean, I, I think he was one of the worst Liberal Prime Ministers ever, probably not as bad as Mr Turnbull, but he had no grasp of the concept of the presumption of innocence. It was true of Mr Lehrman, it was true of Christine Holgate, it was true of the SAS officers. You know, the minute the left-wing media frames an issue, our liberal leaders don't take a day to think about it. They don't say, well, really, is that true? They just come blazing in and attacking their own side. I mean, it's just crazy. Unbelievable. Just take someone, just take one example, and I've alluded to this before, uh, because the bloke can't submit to debate. Paul Fletcher. Now, you've pointed this out in an article you wrote. He was a government staffer. That's where you start. And people watching this program most probably have never heard of him, but he did become a government minister. But my viewers have heard of Tom Switzer on this program, articulate, informed, but the insider Fletcher got the gig and joined others, yep. joined others in the federal parliamentary party to knife Abbott in favour of Malcolm Turnbull. And that's his claim to fame. Yes, and uh, um, I mean, Amanda Stoker is not in Parliament now because the Queensland Senate pre-selectors preferred James McGraw, who was the numbers man, to help Turnbull knife Abbott. So what are and, these and, pre-selectors? And Arthur Sinodinus. Arthur Sinodinus. He got the big gig in Washington. He was there organising the numbers against Abbott. Simon Birmingham led the charge against Abbott. What could be said of his contribution to the Liberal Party? And I mean, the truth is, since the defenestration of Mr. Abbott, the Liberal Party has never really recovered. They won the one election with Mr. Morrison by actually standing up for sane energy policies, and then he completely capitulated for no reason at all. But really, the party has gone downhill at the state level and everywhere because conservatives have left the party. And if the moderates think that they have a winning coalition uh, of sort of teal-like voters, they're just deranged. There's not enough people to win that yeah, have their views. It, it is amazing, isn't it? Here is Abbott, who I keep saying, won 25 seats from the Labor Party in two elections. 25 seats. Yep. And you made the point, yep. and I've made the point, like Liberals, where were they? Where were they when during coronavirus, those who made, I think your words were, the big game out of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of choice, freedom of association, where were they when yep. those freedoms were being denied during COVID? I know. Well, James Patterson, Tim Wilson, they gave these magnificent speeches. They quoted John Stuart Mill and they gave these magnificent speeches. But when they had to put their own sort of career on the line or they had to stand up in some way that would, might cost them, they didn't say a word. Not a word. Where, meanwhile, in Britain, uh, there's, you know, four or five dozen Tory MPs voting against the Boris Johnson sort of heavy handed lockdown laws. So they were prepared to, you know, put their own sort of career on the line. And here, who did we have? Alex Antic, George Christensen, or maybe I've missed one or two, uh, you know, mm. but hardly anybody. Yeah. yeah, and even now to this day, Alex Antic, wonderful man in South Australia, he's fighting to retain his Senate spot. Just changing direction a bit here, I'm wondering if the public are waking up to some extent. I mean, you've got this Bud Light beer issue in America. 
And the marketing mob gave the okay to a transgender ad featuring this Dylan Mulvaney, who's a transgender person. But five billion was immediately wiped off the market capitalization of the company. But the marketing vice president just taken leave of absence. I think you make the point. That's because he's of the left. If it was someone on the right that cost a company $5 billion, he'd be turfed out. Yeah, it was actually a woman, the marketing vice president. And, and we don't know if she was required to take a leave of absence, but it's not much of a, uh, not much of a career penalty. So uh, it's interesting that it was the market leader in the U.S. Bud Light is the biggest selling beer. It's gone down, I think, in April, 26% of their sales. That's a lot. Uh, as you said, $5 billion in market capitalization. Here's the interesting thing. It turns out that, and I don't know why this is, but when men start sort of taking over the role of women, like, you know, Nike's got men dressed up trying to sell women's sports bras, and you've got a guy dressed up as a woman trying to sell beer. It was the men who normally buy beer. What is that? 80% of the market. They're the ones who've responded with the boycott, and they won't buy the beer. Where are the women, the top women athletes, when men start playing women's sports and stuff? There's not enough women standing up for women's sort of rights. Absolutely. That's the problem. Absolutely. But what about conservatives losing their jobs just because they voice conservative positions? I mean, you cite Israel Folau, uh, that broadcaster and former baseball star Kurt Schiller, fired by ESPN for objecting to trans men using the women's loo. Um, <laughs> I mean, if any of this Look, stuff... Go on. Go on. What happened to having a thick skin? I mean, if Falau said uh, homosexuals, uh, atheists, and, and drunkards were going to hell. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stuffed on two of those anyway. But who cares? I mean, the guy, I don't care what the guy says. And why, we, why do you kick a great rugby player off? Because you don't agree with his views. That's, that's just not tolerance. I mean, seriously, if you, if you think that your own sort of self-image is affected by what some rugby player says, you've got real problems. The guy's good at rugby. He should be allowed to play rugby. I mean, Brilliant. 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 But then you take that transgender person behind the shooting at that Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, and the FBI refuses to release the transgender link manifesto. But if the mass murderer, you made this point, was a white person, then the shooter's manifesto would be leaked immediately to the New York Times and the Washington Post. <laughs> it's not that it would be. It's not that it would be. It is. And I, I think that the Nashville one has been about like 67 days now. And, and the FBI, the same FBI that uh, we now see with the Durham report, uh, was acting incredibly. I mean, it's worse than Watergate, what happened with the Russia collusion scam and, you know, lying to the FISA courts. And, you know, they knew that this was a Democratic Party operation and they, you know, they pretended to go along with it. The FBI is still sitting on the Hunter Biden laptop they've had for two plus years. And they knew it was true, everything on the laptop. So there's real problems in the U.S. with the intelligence agencies getting those 51 intelligence operatives to sign that letter that what did they say? It had all the hallmarks of Russia disinformation. And they were writing that when they knew that the laptop was real. So these these are this is like serious. This is a serious problem. And uh, so the problem is you need Republicans now to come in and clear out the upper echelons of the intelligence services. They're 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 acting in a way that's not compatible with democratic government. To be Absolutely. Honest. And just it's before you just before you go, then come back to the Liberal Party. So what does the Liberal Party need to do in Australia? Well, I think they need someone needs to push to have the party base pick the leader. 
it took a long time for that to happen in Canada. But since that's happened, you know, you have 700,000 members. Because if you say to people, join the party, and after a year, you will have the same vote for party leader that Julian Leeser has, or Simon Birmingham, or any moderate, you know what, people join because joining means something. And so that's why I said, just think of 700,000 party members in the Conservative Party in Canada. And then you would find that the party base picking leaders, we get quite different leaders. We, we still might get Mr. Dutton. He's our last hope right now, but he's not really showing much uh, intestinal fortitude on the voice. He should be coming out blistering. I mean, uh, Cash, Cash is doing much better than Dutton. She's been good on the voice. She's come out and said it's divisive. It's, you know, it plays to left wing activists. It's going to give power to the courts. It's a disaster. And I want to hear Dutton come out and say okay. that, you know. And and, yeah. and, and and then energy policy to boot. Good to talk to you, James. We, we keep at it. <laughs> he throws his hands no, in the air. It. We don't give up. We keep at it. There we are. Great no, to talk. <laughs> Great to talk Thank to you. you. We'll talk again no. soon. There we are, Pres no, Professor absolutely. James Patterson. Isn't he good? Uh, James Allen. Isn't he good? Spot on on all those fronts. But when are they going to wake up? I'm not too sure anyone is interested even in listening. Be back in a minute. How many times on this program and in other forums have I talked about the crisis in education and not one politician, with the exception of Mark Latham, has gone remotely close to identifying the problem? To other politicians, it's a case of throwing more money at the problem with no result. We had almost two years ago the first ever Australian teacher workforce data report ignored by all governments. It showed nearly half the nation's maths and foreign language teachers are not qualified to teach the subject, half. A quarter of the maths teachers surveyed said they had no training in maths. Between 36 and 46% of teachers were teaching subjects in which they had no special skill. But we continue to spend billions of dollars on fake education. Our students are the losers. There was a survey of nearly 18,000 teachers in 2021. No government minister has come anywhere near acknowledging those survey results. 18,000 teachers. Politicians go on about higher pay, obviously to buy votes, but only 29% of those teachers, 18,000 surveyed, wanted higher pay. Discipline, they said, was a phenomenal problem, completely unaddressed. But talk to ministers for education, federally and state, results, no problem. Teacher shortages, no problem. Discipline, no problem. But a Monash University study of 6,000 teachers showed that barely a quarter planned to stay on in the profession. Three quarters of the teachers surveyed in the Monash University study felt unsafe because of abusive and demanding students and parents. One teacher complained of hitting, punching, shouting, screaming and tantrums. So why should we be surprised to learn that we're one and a half years behind Singapore students when it comes to reading and science, three years behind when it comes to maths. We used to be fourth in the world in relation to reading, we're now 16th. We used to be eighth in science, we're now 17th. We used to be 11th in maths, we're now 29th. Yet on all this failure, we're spending up to $130 billion. Way back in 2021, I spoke of a La Trobe University short course in teaching phonics the tried and tested method of teaching young people how to spell and how to read. A thousand teachers signed up because they weren't taught properly in the first place. What are they taught? They're taught about the dishonest ravings of Greta Thunberg, 
Remember, she told the world that our generation have, quote, stolen her dreams, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are at the beginning of mass extinction. You call those lies? We haven't heard much of Thunberg, have we? Perhaps someone's woken up to the lies. But how many children's minds have been warped as a result? I mentioned last year a year eight class at one high school where students were made to fill out a questionnaire asking when and how did they first decide they were heterosexual? 13 year old girls and boys, it's creepy stuff. At one high school in New South Wales, students were made to kneel in homage to Black Lives Matter, an openly neo-Marxist organisation that attacks the nuclear family and promotes gender fluidity. Yet every other day, there's a story to tell us that things are terrific. Well, what's today's story? Struggling year 12 students who fail exams and assignments are still passing maths and English subjects because state curriculum bodies are pushing pass marks below 50%. And reports that in Victoria, students could pass final year 12 science, maths and English exams despite getting two out of three questions wrong. And then a statement of the obvious, schools can't find enough teachers with university qualifications in maths and science subjects. Yesterday's story was that the taxpayer-funded Australian Educational Research Organisation was warning that one in five students is struggling at a year four level of English and maths when they start high school, which starts in year seven. The chief executive of the Australian Educational Research Organisation said one in five students starting high school at the age of 12 or 13 has the maths and English ability of children three years younger. Slowly, some in the public place are waking up. But there was a story yesterday that a Western Sydney boy was plotting education reform. The boy, well, not a boy. He's the new Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare. He knows everything, saying the power of education changes lives. Mr Minister, it does. Just as the power of bad education destroys lives. And he's asserting that education policy is a strong point for Labor. Well, I don't know what they've done to justify that self-indulgent assertion, but what is Jason Clare's plan, a new federal education minister? He won't speak to me on this program because he couldn't carry an informed discussion on education. His plan, give public schools as much funding as the Gonski plan said they needed, and universal free childcare, and he's commissioned a root and branch review. What of, you guessed it, school funding. Not school results. We already have all of that. We've got a Monash University study of 6,000 teachers that'll tell us that these teachers felt unsafe, woeful discipline. We've got the first ever Australian teacher workforce data report. Half of the nations, the nations, Jason Clare, are you listening? Not your little Cabramatta primary school. Half of the nations, maths and foreign language teachers, are not qualified to teach the subject. A quarter of the maths teachers said they had no training in maths at all. Between 36 and 46% of teachers were teaching subjects to which they have no special skill. Are parents asking schools whether this is going on in their school? When it comes to reading and science, we're one and a half years behind Singapore students, three years behind them in maths. And so it goes on. And what's this new minister, Jason Clare, going to do? Fork out more money on failed programs. A root and branch review of school funding. Well, if Jason Clare wants to treat education as an investment, then like any investment, he had better familiarise himself with the dividend, with the results. And the results 
If you had an annual general meeting into education, the results would cause a shareholder revolt. The shareholders are the taxpayers and the parents. Mr. Clare, I know you're new to the job, but your ignorance of the problem is already transparent. The first problem in education is discipline. Without discipline, you can't have successful anything. The second issue is content, which has two prongs to it. Rubbish is being taught, which we can do without, and the stuff that should be taught isn't being taught. But you see, Labor only has one answer to any problem, throw money at it. It's easy, of course, when it's not your money. A new minister, but if you do today what you did yesterday, you'll get yesterday's result. And that result in education across the country is failure. Look, if I might say immodestly, I may be the first person to have said so, but you can forget all the polls. Out there in Struggle Street, as I told you last week, the Albanese government honeymoon is over. The divorce papers are being written. You will recall in Peter Dutton's budget reply speech, he made the none too startling suggestion that Australia should consider nuclear power. Yet again, many in the media with either no memory or little regard for history should have been able to argue that the Dutton suggestion was hardly novel. I've referred many times to a speech by the late Prime Minister Bob Hawke in September 2005, nearly 18 years ago, when he called on the ALP to abandon its policy on uranium and importantly, and I quote, to promote Australia as a repository for nuclear waste, unquote. Mr Hawke said Australia has the geologically safest places in the world for the storage of waste, unquote. He also said, quote, what Australia should do, in my judgment, as an act of economic sanity and environmental responsibility, is to say we will take the world's nuclear waste, unquote. Well, here we are, swimming in debt. Mr Hawke argued we could pay off that debt. He said, quote, we could revolutionise the economies of Australia if we did this, unquote. That was 2005. Well, Mr Hawke returned to the subject on February 9, 2015, when he backed citing a nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Ironically, he said, quote, the Labor Party has shown that it has a degree of flexibility in the nuclear debate, particularly with the export of uranium. And he said in 2015, global warming is a very real threat. At that point in the interview, I remember disagreeing with him rather heatedly on air, but put that aside, Mr. Hawke said, nuclear power generation is an important part of dealing with that challenge, that's global warming, with storage. He said, if we could make it safer for the world, it would be a win-win situation, um, unquote. I wonder whether Mr. Hawke was thinking of Chris Bowen when he said in 2015, ignorance is the enemy of good policy. This of course brings us to this policy charlatan, Chris Bowen. A charlatan, by the way, is a person who falsely claims to have a special knowledge, but doesn't. Bowen more than once has called nuclear energy a complete joke, that quote, nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis. Energy prices are going through the roof. And that's the big bright idea. He said, let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of, unquote. What did Bob Hawke say? Ignorance is the enemy of good policy. Remember, Bowen is the bloke who buried Bill Short in the 2019 election with a punitive and divisive tax policy and then said, well, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. You've heard me say on good energy policy that it can be responsibly described in one sentence. It must be available, reliable and affordable. Nuclear energy is available 24 hours a day and virtually emissions free. We have at least a third of the world's uranium. 
but nuclear power has been banned in this country since 1986. The technology is now so advanced that these small modular reactors, SMRs, you'll see them in the media referred to, can be placed in remote areas, unlike old reactors that needed to be near large water catchments. The new SMRs can be buried to withstand any physical or natural disaster. They can be mass produced in an offsite factory, shipped to locations and assembled there. And they need only 5% of the nuclear fuel that is needed to power large conventional reactors. Every year we export more than 400 shipping containers of uranium, enough to generate all of our own electricity with zero emissions. But instead of producing electricity at home, Australian uranium is used to produce vast amounts of clean energy in America. You ready for this, America? Remember Bowen? Oh, we can't have any of this. Well, here we are. Uranium-fired energy in America, South Korea, China, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Belgium, Finland, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, the UK, Armenia, Belarus, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, Slovenia, Ukraine, Turkey, Bangladesh, China, India, Japan, Pakistan, South Africa, Iran, and the United Arab Emirates. But Australia is burdened with an energy ignoramus and an ideological misfit in this Chris Bowen. After the Dutton comments, Bowen attacked Peter Dutton, posted a video on social media that controversially included images of yellow barrels, and no doubt someone in the Albanese government told this fool Bowen to take it down. I've said before and I'll say it again, Chris Bowen is an albatross around the neck of our energy future. Nick Cater is a splendid contributor here on ADH. You can watch him at 8pm every Thursday night. He's also a senior fellow at the Menzies Research Centre and he joins me. Nick, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Great to be here. Uh, well, the best you could say about Bowen was encapsulated in a headline of a piece that you wrote recently. Chris Bowen is a costly waste of energy. But, but Nick, he's a dangerous individual. Well, he is. He is, uh, Alan. I mean, he, he, he's, he's clearly... I mean, I, I thought when he came to the job, I thought it was a difficult job, right? I, I, energy is a very complex area in this, this country, not least because the government has intervened so many times and made it even worse. But it, he would, you know, he'd pick it up as he went along, but he hasn't. He just dug his heels in. He came in with a fixed idea that this country could run on wind and solar and batteries and hydro alone. 82% was his target for 2030. Totally unachievable. You only ask any engineer would tell you that. But he, he has not relented. That is his plan. And he's doubled down and he's insisting that this is the way forward. And followed by, of course, he's got this... Uh, this pipe dream about hydrogen, which is, uh, you know, potentially a future yes. technology, but it's way from ready. And he's, yet he's put two billion dollars of our money into it. So mm. the, the man just does not got his feet on the ground. He's not listening to advice or he's getting the wrong advice, uh, but he's just not grounded in reality mm. right now. No, the way well, I say it. He won't come on this program because uh, you'll enjoy this, viewers. The last time I had him on, he was the shadow treasurer and he couldn't tell me the marginal tax rates. Uh, this interview went viral. Here is evidence that in that portfolio, he didn't know what he was talking about, but he was too arrogant to concede. So I just kept at it. The bloke is now in charge of energy policy. Just bear with us and have a look at this. Can you outline to everyone out there what are the various tax levels, at what point we pay so much in tax if you're an income earner? Oh, so on. for example, who, at what point do we pay nothing for tax? 
Hmm? No, 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 no tax at all. Well, you pay up no, to you, you get a, you get a tax-free threshold. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Hmm? Well, you get you pay no tax. Yeah, what is it? Well, you get a low-income earner's tax What's offset. Tax -free threshold? You get a low-income earner's tax offset, which what then provides. What is the tax-free threshold? Well, Alan, the ta on, what is the tax-free? There's a point up to which yes. we don't pay any tax. What Correct. is that? And point? then you get a low-income tax point? offset, which what provides a point? refund to lower middle-income earners. What is the point Alan, at which we pay no tax? And you raise high-income superannuation. I mean, the fellow for treasurer, claim Chris, I'll, I'll give him the answer. The answer is eighteen thousand two hundred. Yeah, Between eighteen thousand two hundred, where do right. we go to the next point? Oh, but, that's right. That's <laughs> where is well, the, the bottom threshold is, of course, 15%. Yeah, but hang on. The man is pretending he no, wants well, to be the Treasurer of Australia and doesn't know the tax threshold. No, no, so we go from 18,200... I'm, I'm not going to cop well, from you. Well, come on, you, you couldn't answer the first question. Mouth, because I'm so what's here to talk to you about serious issues. What's the next threshold? I'm not going to do a pop quiz for you, What's the next threshold for 18,200? I'm not going to do a pop quiz with you. What is the next threshold for I repeat, from 18,200, we then move to the next tax threshold. What tax do we pay between 18,200, and I'll tell you what it is, it's 37,001. So between 18, what do we pay? 15%. We don't pay 15, we pay 19 cents in the dollar. <laughs> that was from a TV program I did with Graham Richardson, who was absolutely gobsmacked, said the bloke was shadow treasurer. And I think it's fair to say Richo is no Bowen supporter. The bloke there plainly out of his depth. Now, Nick, he went on with the same stuff in relation to Peter Dutton's comment about nuclear power, saying, we don't have a nuclear power industry, a regulatory or safety framework. We don't have nuclear power experience. We don't have a nuclear power workforce. Building these capabilities will take decades. Uh, Nick, where was this bloke when we signed off on nuclear submarines? Well, exactly. I mean, if, he, if as he says, we're not going to have the nuclear expertise for decades, then, well, well, we might as well kiss goodbye to the nuclear subs. There's no point in buying them. But the truth is, Alan, as you know, we've had a nuclear react reactor operating in this country uh, since, I, th I think, at least the early 60s uh, at ANSTO. And, and they, you know, they, they, it's used for very valuable uh, medical work, producing medicines that, that save lives. And this thing has been run safely. They've been storing waste on their own site very safely. And if you visit Ansto, you can go and look where the waste is stored. You can climb over it if you like, because it's safe. It's intermediate waste and it's, it's locked in barrels. He's really scraping the bottom of the barrel, if you like, when, you, when he wheels out pictures, as you commented earlier, of yellow barrels with a nuclear symbol crudely painted on. If you look at the origin of those pictures, it, it comes from an, an environmentalist group in Britain. And when you see the originals, it's quite clear they've just painted these barrels and stuck them in a field in Norfolk or somewhere. You know, the, the man can't be taken seriously, but, but this, is, this is a really serious matter because he is our energy minister. You know, there are people around the world looking at what's happening here with energy policy, people like the International Energy Authority, and, and they'd be astounded that this man, this, this chap is our energy minister when he sits there really just making up fibs about, about our energy uh, mm. capability here and the, and the availability and, and potential for nuclear yeah. energy. And the bloke does no homework. You see, he made a fool of himself in that interview with me on the tax scales. He made a fool of himself in the 2019 election on divisive tax policy, telling the voter, if you don't like it, well, don't vote for us. 
and now he's been forced to take down the video. My own view is that at some point Albanese has to replace this fellow. But how can Australia deal with a bloke who puts these frightening pictures of nuclear waste on social media saying, we've struggled here in Australia to store the nuclear fuel rods from our one small medical reactor. This prompted, and Nick has just made reference to this, this prompted Dr. Adrian Patterson. Now, he has run our sole nuclear reactor at Lucas Heights for a dozen years. He slammed the video posted on social media by Bowen. And in a Senate hearing on whether Australia's nuclear ban should be lifted, Dr. Patterson said the Bowen video gravely concerned him because it, quote, maligned the very carefully trained and committed workforce at ANSTO, that's the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. Dr. Patterson argued reflection should be given to the deep damage that this political gamesmanship does. Nick, uh, at what point does a bloke earn the sack? He's costing us serious amounts of money, Alan. You know, he's committed... 10 billion and another 10 billion potentially to build transmission lines that we just won't need if we went the sensible path and put small modular reactors in existing coal-fired power stations. I mean, that's going to be redundant if, if, as I hope we do, we get to a sensible policy one day. He's encouraged the investment, as you know, in solar and wind mm. to a point where we just we have too much of it. I mean, they're selling it at a negative price, i.e. the renewable energy companies are paying people to take their energy in the middle of the day. They've got too much of it and there's not there's not enough at night. He's driving this policy with great gusto, not realising that there's no country in the world that's yep. got to 82%, let yep. alone 100%, which he's aiming at. This is a world ex first that Boeing is embarking on, well, and I'm not sure that he's capable of, not of at doing all. it. And the problem is I don't think Albanese understands the issue. This is the problem. There would be some in the party who do. But here's a fellow who's saying we must install 22,500 watt solar panels every day for eight years. We have to install, this is to get to 43% reduction by 2030. He's talking about 82. We have to install 40 seven megawatt wind turbines every month for eight years. And as Nick just said, 10,000 kilometres of additional transmission lines. Nick Cater, Bowen's proved here that he should not be in this policy area. My concern is, have the public woken up? They are waking up to this, Alan, very quickly. And I think one of the things that's waking people up is the price of energy. I mean, we're promised that the more renewables we put in, the cheaper the price. And of course, they famously promised that our bills would come down by $275 in their first term of government. None of that's happening. Energy prices are going the other way. People are twigging to this, right? They know that, that their prices are going up and yet we've got more renewables. They're smart enough to look to a country like Finland, which you mentioned earlier, which has got uh, you know, nuclear power and its, its prices are a fraction of ours, or Canada, Ontario, for instance, where you know, the average power bill is probably about a third of what we pay here. Mm. And that's nuclear and, and a fair bit of hydro too. Uh, so you, 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 you know, the, the numbers do not stack up. But I mean, what's this mean for business? Oh, well, it's crippling for business. Well, why don't they open their mouth instead of being so gutless and falling into line? I, I couldn't agree more with you. This is what one of my big frustrations is, that you'll talk to people in the industry, in other sectors of the energy sector, other areas of the energy sector. They know this. They know this is a fool's errand that Boeing has embarked on. They know it is impossible to run a grid at 100% wind, solar, batteries and hydro. It just cannot be done. But nobody speaks up no. until the other week, of course, when 
Paul Broad, the former CEO yeah. of Snowy Hydro, stood up and said, this is bullshit. Alan, I, I, I thought that was the emperor's got no clothes moment. And yes. I, I think that that cut through with people and that they realised that somebody at last has stood you're, up and you're said right. so. You are right, Nick, but you've got this Bowen criticising Dutton, but, I mean, a senior minister in the Albanese government on a major policy issue, completely rebutted by Dr. Adrian Patterson, who ran the nuclear reactor at Lucas Heights. I mean, I've got no idea what Holly Hughes, the federal opposition assistant energy spokeswoman knows about the nuclear industry. I have no idea what she knows, but I give her full marks for saying that Bowen must have gained his knowledge from the Simpsons opening <laughs> credits. I mean, how is it, Nick, that there could be over 450 nuclear power reactors in the world, in over 50 countries, many of them using our uranium, just as many countries have risen out of poverty by buying our coal and gas, and we've got a government here that openly seeks to deny us access to nuclear power and the energy benefits from fossil fuel. I just hope the Australian voter understands that they're leading us over the cliff. This I've called it the economic suicide note. That's what it is. And, and, and add absurdity to absurdity. Of course, they have agreed to have nuclear submarines, which effectively have a, a small modular reactor on board, which they'll presumably have to take onshore to service or to train people. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I think that they're running out of arguments. Here's an interesting thing about the committee meetings in Canberra, which you referred to yesterday, occurred yesterday, Alan, when A.D. Patterson made those, those comments. Uh, other people were there, people like uh, Tony Irvin, uh, uh, others who know what they're talking about. These are serious nuclear engineers. L the Labor members on that panel had no real comeback. They had no questions to put of any weight. And the Greens did not even turn up. So I think, I think to me, that's an indication that they just know that they can't keep countering, you know, mm. fact and reality well, forever. as I said at the beginning of this program, the honeymoon is over and this is part of the divorce papers being written. It's great to talk to you, Nick. We do thank you for your scholarship. This man writes brilliantly in the Australian newspaper. You'll hear him here on Thursday nights at eight o'clock. And he's a fellow of the Menzies Research Centre. But this is a very, this is the biggest issue in the country, this whole energy policy. And Bowen and Co are leading Australia and the economy. Business, wake up and say something. But we're going over the cliff. Peter Dutton should be saying, well, we're not going over, the Liberal Party, we're not going over the cliff with you. We're waiting for him to say that. Hopefully they'll get round to it. Good to talk to you, Nick. Thanks, Alan. There he is, Nick Cater. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for tonight's attendance at this little lesson. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.